Welcome to the World Resources Podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. My guest today is Andrew Steer. He's the president and CEO of the World Resources Institute, and our topic today is the year ahead, 2016. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Andrew, you have enough optimism not only for me, but for 500 people who work at WRI and in the rest of the world as well. Uh, your opening blog post for 2016 is three cheers as we enter 2016. You've got a couple of sentences at the beginning acknowledging that there might be reason for pessimism. People know those well. Terrorism, inequality, the hottest year on record, um, gun problems in the United States, the list goes on and on. But then you proceed to tell us why we actually ought to be optimistic. What's your first cheer? Well, the first cheer is that for the first time in a long time, uh, we've seen multilateral processes that actually work. 2015 was a very important year. Many of us who worked on the Sustainable Development Goals design didn't believe it would be possible to have such unanimity um, and such a serious process actually completed ahead of time. Um, I was in the General Assembly Hall when the, uh, the Sustainable Development Goals in September were gaveled um, by acclamation into existence. Um, what was particularly striking was that following that, um, head of state after head of state spoke up, representing all the regions in the world, saying that they felt that these sustainable development goals actually represented their views and the views of their citizens in a way that was really profoundly different from what had happened in 2001 when the Millennial Development Goals were approved. And that same sense um, actually was felt in Paris at the time of the climate negotiation when uh, that agreement was done as well. Um, so for the first time uh, in many years, we've seen in our line of business multilateral processes that work. And this is very, very important because these are global challenges affecting all countries and global challenges require international cooperation, uh, which is a commodity which has been in very short supply. You have a second sort of cheer and a half. You talk about the uh, private sector involvement, and I guess this goes especially to the Paris Climate Agreement. You've been talking about the Sustainable Development Goals, but uh, multilateralism worked on two counts. We have not only the Sustainable Development Goals being agreed at the United Nations in New York, but of course the Paris Climate Agreement concluded in December, and the particular role of the private sector in that. Yes. Um, it wasn't long ago that, that people really believed that um, sustainability would, uh, if you wanted to really invest in sustainability and take policies to make things more sustainable, particularly in an area like climate change, you would pay a pretty high price. And not only would the cost be high, but it actually would undermine competitiveness, jobs, and, and economic growth. Um, uh, that, uh, that hypothesis has been pretty well debunked over the last two or three years by a whole set of researchers, most obviously perhaps the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate, where you, know, you had really world-class analysts um, accountable to a world-class group of leaders um, concluding that far from 
a trade-off between growth and action on climate change, um, actually there was a complementarity. Now, it's nice that academics and researchers come to that conclusion. Much more important is <laughs> when those who have got real skin in the game come to that conclusion. And that's what's happened over the last uh, two years, I'd say, but especially in 2015 with the private sector. You can't imagine five years ago a thousand companies um, signing up saying, we need a price on a carbon. So too, for example, World Resource Institute, together with WWF and uh, CDP and a couple of other organizations, such as the Global Compact and We Mean Business, we put together something that we called science-based targets. And that was a program where we were seeking major corporations to sign up to a transparent process where they would set themselves targets for reducing their greenhouse gases within their entire supply chain and their own operations in a way that was consistent with science. In other words, they would say, not only are we going to do better, we're going to do enough so that uh, the problem of climate change will be, will be, uh, uh, will be addressed. And we thought that if before Paris we could get 20 companies, this would be spectacularly successful. In fact, by Paris, it was 114 major companies multinational companies, many of whom are household names, uh, said, we want to be part of this. And they are now actively setting targets. Now, the question is, why are they doing it? They're doing it because they realize that this is in their own long-term economic interest. And so far from be believing that this is a real trade-off for them, they actually um, are acting in a way um, that shows and illustrates the synergies that the new climate economy work um, uh, demonstrated. And so too in Paris, for example, I mean, there were many such demonstrated actions by the, by the private sector, committing themselves to action, committing themselves to transparency in, in influence, in, in, in delivering that action. Now, this is not to say that everyone is on board yet, far from it. It's not to say that everyone is a winner because whilst nations as a whole and economies as a whole can do much better if you take smart action against climate change, some will be losers. And so we still see a great deal of opposition out there, but the tide is turning and something very important is happening. So that's your cheer number two. You say researchers and leading practitioners agree action on climate and other sustainable, sustainability issues are not a cost but an investment. Your number three, you say an unstoppable movement gains pace, the force awakens. And you go in here to the rather complex and somewhat technical question of what parts of the Paris Agreement are binding and what parts are not. But you know that even the non-binding pieces can constitute a nudge. I'd like you to unpack that issue of nudge a little bit. Well, the, the, uh, the sort of textbook um, view of what a climate deal should be would be to say, look, everybody, we're only allowed to emit a certain amount of greenhouse gases. That's just the laws of physics tell us that, that we want to stay within a certain temperature. Therefore, we need to figure out how much we can emit. And then we need to divvy that up among all the countries of the world and they have to be legally uh, binding obligations so that those countries would actually, um, would actually uh, uh, adhere to that. Now, um, that would be nice if that could happen, but that never would happen. 
um, you wouldn't get all the countries in the world um, to, to make commitments. Now, what we've actually got is 187 countries have now signed up to commitments. Those are voluntary commitments. Um, but what is not voluntary, what is legally binding, is the process by which they will report, the process by which they will be reviewed and monitored, the process by which every year they report and every five years they come back and you have a serious discussion, a serious review with the idea that you ramp up, um, uh, ramp up uh, uh, ambition. Now, wh what's that got to do <laughs> with modern psychology? Quite a lot. Um, modern psychology, through its various strands of, of you know, uh, social psychology, cognitive psychology, has, has understood what it takes to really get a movement going. Why, why does behavior get changed in such a radical way? Why do we switch from not recycling at all to recycling a lot? Why do we, um, why do we uh, choose to stop smoking? Now, part of it is you pass laws. But actually, that's not necessarily the most important. The laws often trigger something that are much more important, which is you change your behavior when you see others changing your behavior, particularly those you respect. And you can get into, um, you can get into if you like, an upward spiral of ambition. And as you, as you look at sort of the real revolutions that have happened, over the last 30 years. Consider, for example, economic policymaking in developing country. By, back in 1980, the vast majority of countries were following pretty bad macroeconomic policies. But within 15 years, between 1985 and the year 2000, about 100 countries radically changed the way they do economics. They started following much more sensible policies with regard to budget deficits, trade deficits, um, financial policy. They did away with a lot of the distortions in the economy. And the question is, why would 100 countries make a decision so quickly to radically change the way they do business? As you're saying, it's not a binding agreement. It's, no, it's nothing it's to do with that. Mores, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's what your friends are talking about. It's what your exactly. neighbors and competitors what are doing. what the country next door is doing. It's what the finance minister that you meet at the G20 is doing. It's, it's, it's talking up, especially in today's globalized world. So if you are a head of state or a head of government or a minister, you go to lots of international meetings, you want the right kind of things to say, you see that the country next door is driving its growth through higher technology because it's investing in solar energy, so you decide to do the same. And that's what modern psychology tells us. And this is why, of course, economics has changed so radically uh, in the last 20 years. The whole so-called behavioral economics school has recognized that so-called rational man <laughs> is not as rational as we thought. That, in fact, we make decisions due to a lot of complex processes. And that is true, particularly if you are a political leader. But it's also true, actually, even if you are a corporate leader as well. I find this so interesting because so much of the behavioral economics and the idea of nudge has focused on individual behavior. And you're taking this idea and applying it across nations, nation states. And, and, uh, and I think that's very legitimate because um, nations actually are run by individuals. It's individual politicians who, um, who, who actually have careers to manage, um, elections to win, uh, speeches to give, um, and constituents to please. 
um, and want to stand for something. They want a legacy. And so I don't think, um, <clears throat> so, I, so that's why I think having worked for a government myself, having reported to a minister, seeing the way that decisions are made, it seems to me this is a very legitimate way. Now, I don't want to overdo this. You still need laws. You still, you're still good that there is a smoking ban. But if you actually look at the research as to why the switch against smoking has become so complete in so many places, it is much more due to the nudging than it is due to the regulations. We need both. So by no means am I saying uh, we don't need a climate, a legally binding climate agreement. We do. The, the, the deal that we've got today from Paris is legally binding, but what's legally binding are the processes that will uh, hopefully leverage things upwards. Now, having said that, we're still on the wrong track. Things are still not going well. We are still heading towards a world that is dangerous in terms of its temperature and its extreme weather events and its sea level rise and its shifts in the hydrological cycles and so on. So, so to this year, 2016, is, is as important as 2015. We now need to pivot towards implementation. And, and certainly here at the World Resources Institute, we're, we're doing that in a very big way. Let's save that pivot towards implementation for our next chat. Andrew, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, and I find that this analysis of what happened in 2015 personally very inspiring, and I hope that our listeners will find it the same way. Thank Thanks you, very thank much. Thank you very much. This has been the WRI Podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I hope you'll join me for our next show.